Well, good morning, church. So when I was a kid, this was one of my favorite books to look through. It's uh, Exploring the Titanic. And uh, for those of you under the age of 30, uh, you might not realize this, but we didn't grow up with the internet, some of us. I, I, I grew up without the internet. There's people older than me that didn't grow up with the internet. If you wanted to learn about the Titanic, you had to go to one of these buildings called a library and check out a book. And if you wanted to have pictures of what the Titanic looked like and learn about, you know, how it was built and all of those different things, you had to go get a book like this. And I would flip through this book and I would look at the pictures and I must have read it a dozen times. And, uh, and now you just Google it, you know. And, and so books like this don't maybe carry as much weight as they used to. But one page out of this book came to mind as I was preparing for today's message. And it, it was this page. And I had this sort of seared into my memory. Uh, this page right here shows that the Titanic probably missed the iceberg that sank it. At least what they could see of it above the surface. But uh, this smaller picture, you probably can't see that, but you know that icebergs, only maybe 5 to 10% of the iceberg is above the water. The vast majority of the iceberg, and sometimes quite a bit larger footprint under the water uh, of the iceberg, is beneath the surface. And so I was fascinated by the Titanic as a kid, and I was fascinated by the fact that the largest ship that ever sailed got sunk by something beneath the surface on its maiden voyage, no less. Before there was a movie by James Cameron, before there was anything else, I had that book and I had that image in my mind. And that came back to mind this week because what lies beneath the surface in our lives, in our relationships, really matters. It's often harder to see, even though it might be 20 times the size. And if you've ever looked out over the uh, still water, the water reflects what's above it, right? So you don't necessarily even see what's beneath the water. You see an image of the sky or something like that. And if the water is rough, if it's not still, then you can't see beneath the surface very well in that setting either. And so it's harder to see what's beneath the surface sometimes. But in this series, over the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking beneath the surface. If you put on goggles or you put on a face mask of some sort or you use some, some sort of a tool to look beneath the water, you can see really clear once you get beneath the surface. And part of what this series is going to be doing is going to be taking us beneath the surface, looking and doing some work, perhaps, beneath the surface. Today's message, uh, as we go through this series titled Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, today's message is going to be talking about the problem of emotionally unhealthy spirituality and how that kind of creeps up on us and how it impacts us as we seek to follow Christ. And I almost named this series Kingdom Spirituality because we've been on this kingdom kick all year and this kingdom emphasis. And I think kingdom spirituality is emotionally healthy spirituality. But for the sake of clarity and where we're doing the books and the groups, I said, no, we'll just call it what it is. It's emotionally healthy spirituality. And uh, I, I was thinking about that and thinking about that link to the kingdom. And I really believe that Jesus Christ was the most emotionally healthy human being who ever lived. Right? Like, think about that for a minute. He was the most emotionally healthy person who ever lived. He was unmanipulatable, and he never manipulated anybody. He, he lived out the Sermon on the Mount perfectly and beautifully. He, he just represented emotionally healthy spirituality. He was also probably the most deeply spiritual person. Not probably, definitely the most deeply spiritual person who's ever lived. That's Jesus. 
He was emotionally healthy and he was deeply spiritual. So as we think about him and we think about his call to become disciples of him, learners of him, I was reminded of a definition of discipleship that I've shared a number of times from Dallas Willard. He says that discipleship is simply learning to live my life as Jesus would if he were me. So I don't need to necessarily define discipleship for you. I can define discipleship for me as learning to live my life as Jesus would if he were me, and you can do the same. And so if Jesus was the pastor of Linwood Wesleyan Church, how would he live his life? And I love this because it means that I don't have to grow long hair and a beard and move to Israel to be a follower of Jesus because that's what Jesus did. I can learn from Jesus how to live my life if he were me. And so can you. And that's discipleship, learning to live your life as Jesus would if he were you, if he were a doctor, if he were uh, a mechanic, if he were a police officer, if he were a teacher, if he were a nurse, if he were whatever. If he had your relationships, if he lived in your setting, if he was you, how would he live his life? And so emotionally healthy spirituality is the context for that. Uh, it was deeply impactful for me. I did it just over a year ago. I try not to be a knee-jerk. Oh, this was great. I read this book. Let's do a sermon series on it next month. I try to let things stew a little bit, and, and, and stew is a good word for that because, I, you, know, I kind of, you know the difference between stew that's been in a crock pot all day and hungry man stew <laughs> that you microwaved, and it's been hot for all of about 20 seconds. So I wanted to preached this sermon series, and as I worked through it, and then I saw the impact that it was having on me, and I found that it was centered on God's Word, that it, it was deeply scriptural and tied to what I believe is God's vision for our lives. It fit very, very well in this year and in this sermon series, and so I wanted to share it with you uh, because I think it could be deeply significant for you too. I think it could be deeply significant for us as a church. I think it could have a deep impact on our world, on the world around Linwood, as the people who call Linwood their church home become more emotionally healthy, they will impact the world in a different way. And I, I do believe that it could be deeply significant to you, to your marriage, to your family, to the legacy that you leave in this world. And legacy is a really important word around here. You know, Pastor Zach did a wonderful job of sharing about our mission and our vision in that opening uh, welcome. But we also have core values that undergird everything we do as we seek to accomplish that mission and realize that vision. And our core values are centering our lives on God's Word, caring for each other, and leaving a legacy of faith. We want the legacy that we leave to be a legacy of faith, of trusting God deeply. And so I think this has the opportunity to impact your legacy as well as our legacy. And I was looking for a quote this week, and I don't think I found the quote I was looking for, but I found a better one. So you get the better one, okay? And the problem is I don't know who said it. It was all over the internet, but it wasn't attributed to anybody. And so I've just quoted the internet here for you, but the internet says that when we heal ourselves, we heal the next generation that follows. Pain is passed through the family line until someone is ready to feel it, heal it, and let it go. And I think that's true. I have seen as a pastor, and I think we can all identify where pain travels down through these family lines, through a dysfunctional family system or through some unmet expectations or through, you know, alcoholism tends to run down the lines or different various addictions, those types of things, that pain gets transmitted through family lines until someone's ready to feel it, to heal it, and to let it go. And so I believe this could be deeply significant for us as individuals, for our families, and for our family. 
of families. It comes with a warning. It might be uncomfortable at times. In fact, if you dig into this, it will be uncomfortable. But it will be worth it. It will absolutely be worth it. And as most things in life, you'll get out of it what you put into it. (laughs) If you come to a couple of sermons, you'll hear a couple of sermons. If you pick a level of engagement that I'm going to talk about in just a moment, and you put quite a bit into this, you'll get quite a bit out of this. If you go deep with this, and you reorganize your life, and you free up time in your schedule to go down deep and stay down long, you'll get a lot out of this. It's really up to you. I've suggested five levels of engagement. I've done this before, and it seems like it's been really well received to just let people kind of self-select, opt in to a level of engagement. But I would encourage you and I would challenge you to pick a level of engagement that's just a little bit of a stretch for you. If this is your first time in church for 20 years, I don't know that level five is a great idea for you, right? But maybe level one would be a great one. Or if you got out of the habit of coming to church or being involved in the church and the rhythms of the church on a weekly basis, then level one would be a great place for you to start. It would represent a a step, a stretch for you to come all eight weeks, to be here if you possibly can. And if you can't be here, to watch online within that 24-hour period. I do think there's a tremendous value in being here present, seeing and being seen. But if you can't be here, and there's the one week we're probably going to miss, we're going to watch it within 24 hours to maintain that rhythm and to build that habit, that, that priority. It's already a priority for us, but, but you might find that that would be a stretch for you or that would cause you to, to learn and to grow in a new way. The next one, the second level of engagement would be to do the first, to come all eight weeks, but also get the book. There's a book that's available in the lobby. We're just our friends at Crossroads have made it really easy for you to put your hands on that. We're not marking it up or anything. We're just passing our price on to you. And if you would like to get the book and read the book that that fleshes this out more, I'm not going to teach the book to you on Sunday mornings. I'm going to preach from the Word because we center our lives on the Word. So I'm going to preach a biblical message to you every week, but the book will coincide with that and will go deeper and will help you if you would like to step into that and read the book. Now, I always say this when I recommend a book. If you're not reading this book, don't buy that one. Pick one of these up. Read this every day. Spend time in God's Word. Start in the book of Psalms if you need to. Get a good study Bible. Make an investment. Read the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark. And get in the habit of reading your Bible every day. And then maybe step into one of these others. Now, if you attend every week and you read the book, but you want to go a little deeper, I would encourage you to pick up this workbook, which comes with some additional videos that are taught by the author, Pastor Pete Scazzaro, and they go deeper, and they have uh, daily questions, and, and you can engage in that, and you can fill that out, and it'll start kind of a journaling habit for you if you're not already a journaler. This is kind of what I did when I went through it a little over a year ago on the sabbatical. I did a self-study with a workbook. I watched the videos. I did the daily studies and wrote out the answers to those questions. Now, if you're doing that and you still want to do something more, then level four would be to do all of that and engage in a group. We have several groups that are available to anyone at Linwood. One meets on a Sunday morning right now at 1030. You could join next week. Don't run out uh, necessarily. Stay for this week. Join next week. You can dive in with that. We'll also have a Wednesday night group that will be starting uh, not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, and it'll kind of track with that for eight weeks. These are great ways to 
engage with other people, but you don't have to pick one of our groups. In fact, you could just meet with somebody a couple of times, have a cup of coffee, go to lunch. As you read through this, as you go through this, and talk about how it's impacting you, talk about some of your takeaways, learn from them what, it's, what their story is. As we verbalize these things and we put them into words, we learn and we grow in a different way than we don't when we don't articulate it to someone else. So I would encourage you to do that. Some of our Banding Together groups are even kind of pushing pause for their meeting time on the Banding Together material, and they're going to be doing this material together. So there's all kinds of options. And if you would like to be in a group and you haven't gotten in one, there is a QR code. You can scan that. You can go to our website, or you can go to our events page on our app, and you can sign up to be in part of a group. It's not too late for that. The last one would be to do all that, and then there's a day-by-day devotional, which is a morning and evening, or midday and evening, or morning and midday. However, there's two sort of chunks of time, and it's not super long, five, ten minutes, but this day-by-day devotional is just wonderful, and it goes along with the content. Uh, It all kind of fits together. And so, depending on where you're wanting to step in, depending on your schedule and the flexibility that you have, uh, there's opportunity over the next eight weeks to build some really good habits and to become more emotionally healthy in your relationships and your relationship with Christ. So back to the iceberg. The reason that that iceberg came to mind is, one, it's on the cover of everything with emotionally healthy spirituality, but it's also a really fitting sort of metaphor or illustration of our souls. There's the part of us that people around us can see. There's the part of us that we're aware of, and some of that coincides and some of that doesn't. There's a part of us that's under the surface that we're aware of, and there's a part of us that's under the surface that we're not necessarily fully aware of. And so we are very complex, complicated beings, much like an iceberg. But we know that the part that's under the surface is a lot bigger than the part that's above the surface. And I know from personal experience, and I know from pastoring for 15 years, that the part above the surface can look pretty good even if what's going on beneath the surface isn't all that good. Maybe you've heard the phrase stained glass masquerade, this idea that we get all dressed up for church and we come in with our smiles and everything, even if we were having a knockdown, drag-out fight on the way to church, right? We put on our smiles and we pretend that we're all okay instead of letting people see our brokenness. And it's really easy to make that 5-10% above the surface look really good to everybody else. And in the book on page 16, Schizero makes this point that I think is a really good point. He says, when people have authentic spiritual experiences, which are good things, such as worship, prayer, Bible studies, fellowship, they can mistakenly believe that they're doing fine even if their relational life is fractured and their interior world is disordered. Their apparent progress then provides a spiritual reason for not doing the work of maturing. It happens to pastors. It happens to churchgoers. It happens to career missionaries. In fact, that's when EHS, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, really landed on my radar was when we had a mission lunch for Tom and Lydia Hines. If you've been around Linwood for a long time, you know that Tom and Lydia Hines were long-term partners. They visited the church multiple times. They came in 2020 and did a missions lunch. And I thought they were going to talk about their missions work. They had talked about Emotionally Healthy Spirituality because that was what was blowing up in their lives. And Lydia, in particular, talked about how she'd been a career missionary. She'd raised this family. She'd done all this stuff for God. And yet, she was very emotionally unhealthy. And that, she was confronted with that. And emotionally healthy spirituality helped her grow, helped her heal, helped her become healthy emotionally. And so that caught my attention. And then I teach uh, lessons in our residency partnership with Ransom Church, where Pastor Aaron and Pastor Ryan went through these leadership lessons. And the decision was made to 
incorporate emotionally healthy spirituality into those sessions. And so I taught one or two as I was like, man, there's really good stuff here. I need to do this. And I chose to do it over the sabbatical time as an opportunity to really learn and really grow. And so I would ask you this question as we begin, as we think about the problem of unhealthy spirituality, of emotionally unhealthy spirituality, I would just ask you this question, just for you, not for the person next to you, not for your spouse or your kids or your parents or anybody else, just for you. Would you say that your inner and outer life are overwhelmingly characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Would you say that your inner life and your outer life are overwhelmingly characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? And would those closest to you agree? Because if they're not, they could be. And I believe they should be. I believe that's God's vision for our lives, is that they would be. This was how Paul described the, the kingdom of God, that life in the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's his definition, his working definition of living in the kingdom of God, living in the rule and reign of God in Romans 15. Is, he defines it as righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, that that's what it looks like. And that's emotionally healthy spirituality, I believe, is living a life where our inner and outer lives are overwhelmingly characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy. It doesn't mean we never have a bad day, but it means our lives are overwhelmingly characterized and that those closest to us would say, yeah, absolutely. And I believe at the heart of the gospel is an invitation. That's what we're going to talk about today is an invitation that Jesus issues to us to come to him. You might be familiar with this passage. It's from Matthew chapter 11. I would encourage you to turn there if you have a Bible with you. If you need one of ours, they're in the seats in front of you, and you can turn to page 1514 in those hardcover blue Bibles. It's a famous passage. You might have seen it on somebody's wall. You might have memorized it as a child or be familiar with it or have heard a number of sermons on it. And if I'm honest with you, I have often thought, that just sounds a little too good to be true, a little too easy and maybe that's just for somebody else. But did Jesus really mean that for me? And I believe he did. And it underscores this reality that Jesus won't make you believe in him. He's never made anybody believe in him. As I said earlier, he never manipulated anyone. He was never manipulated by anyone. He was completely confident in who he was in his relationship with God. He had no identity struggles. He knew who he was. And he never made anyone believe in him, believe that he was the son of God, that he lived a perfect sinless life, that he died a brutal and gruesome and horrifying death on a cross for you, for me, to redeem the world to God. He doesn't make anybody believe that. He doesn't make anybody follow him. He calls them. And we know that from scripture that some came and some didn't, that some left because he had a hard teaching. He never made anybody follow him. He never got out a contract. <laughs> and he doesn't make anybody trust him. He doesn't make you go through life trusting him that it's going to be okay, whatever it is. He doesn't make us do that. But he invites us to. He invites us to believe him. He invites us to believe the truth about who he is, that he is the way, the truth, and the life to God. And he invites us to follow him. And he invites us to trust him, each and every one of you, each and every one of you watching online. Even if you've rejected him, even if you've shaken your fist at him, even if you've scoffed and brushed him aside, even if you're far from God right now, or even if you're saved. But you can't answer yes to that question that I asked earlier. 
and you know that your inner and outer life are not consistently characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy, then he invites you, he invites me, he invites us to trust him personally and deeply. Not just to believe with or agree with certain historical facts about him, but to trust him deeply and personally. And so I want to read this passage to you verse by verse, nice and slow. We're just going to walk through it step by step and see what it has to say to us. The first verse, verse 28, Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's an invitation. It's not a command. It's an invitation, and it's a promise. And it has two parts. There's our part, and there's Jesus' part. Our part is to come to him. Our part is to accept the invitation. Our part is to choose to come to him. And to bring it all with us, not to just bring some little sliver of our lives to him, but to hitch up the trailer, load that sucker up with everything, all our junk, all our garbage, all, everything, the good stuff and the bad stuff, bring it all to him. And he will give us rest. The song that we sang this morning, God So Loved, it opens with bring your addictions, bring your sin, bring your failures. The Graves in the Gardens was a perfect song as well to talk about how we've looked for all these things in the world and we didn't find them, but Jesus offers them to us. And so when we come to him, when we bring all of us to him, not just our highlight reels and our resume, but we bring it all to him, then his part is to give us rest. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We don't actually deserve it on our own merits. He gives it to us. It's a gift. And it's a promise that he will give it to us. He says, I will give you rest. Now, it's addressed to those who are weary and burdened. And I think the immediate context of being weary and burdened, when Jesus said this 2,000 years ago, he was talking to people who were weary and burdened by religion more than anything. That this thing that God had designed to bring us into relationship with him and to move through life in a deep dependence on him had become this wearisome burden. Jesus even blasts the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Matthew 23 for laying a yoke on the people that they themselves couldn't carry, that even the, the Pharisees, and they don't lift a finger to help them. He says, that's not what you should be doing. And he knew that they were weary and they were burdened by religion, this idea that I have to do more, I have to try harder. And today, I don't know that there's that many people that are weary, wearied and burdened by religion. Depending on your upbringing, perhaps you are. But I think a lot of us are wearied and burdened by the pace of life in this culture. We're wearied and burdened by living the way that the world tells us to live instead of living the way that Jesus showed us to live. We're wearied and burdened by this endless pursuit of more, of the American dream, if you want to call it that. We're anxious, we're overwhelmed. We're afraid all the time. And billions of dollars are spent to keep us that way. Henry David Thoreau, over 100 years ago, wrote these words, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. The mass of humanity lead lives of quiet desperation. A month or so ago, at the end of the Kingdom Economics series, I opened that message, that final message, by sharing this, this reality that, that the dominant emotions, most sociologists would say, are guilt from the past, anxiety of the present, and fear of the future. That that's what drives us. That's what gets us up out of the bed in the morning if we're following the world's plan. That's not what should be getting us up out of bed in the morning if we're following Jesus. And Max Lucado even writes on this. He says, you know, we fear so much. We fear being sued. 
finishing last, going broke. We fear the mole on the back, the new kid on the block, the sound of the clock as it ticks us closer to the grave. We have sophisticated investment plans, create elaborate security systems, and legislate a stronger military. And yet, with all that, we're still insecure. We're still anxious. But we don't have to be. We don't have to be. He invites us to trust him. He invites us to come to him. And in the next verse, he invites us to take his yoke. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He repeats the promise because we need to know that it's for us. And it's not just physical rest. It's soul rest. Now, if you skipped breakfast and you didn't grab a cookie on the way in and you hear that word yoke, you might be thinking sunny side up. That's not the kind of yoke that we're talking about. We're talking about a wooden frame that joins two animals together. When Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he's appealing to a physical object that was used to combine or to yoke or to bring two animals together so that they would pull in unison. And it was also a metaphor for submission that if you yoked yourself to someone else, you submitted to them and you agreed to kind of do it their way. It was a metaphor for the Jewish law. As I told you earlier, Jesus in Matthew 23 kind of blasted the Pharisees for the yoke that they had placed on the people with all the extra laws and all the extra rules and regulations. And it had become this crushing burden to be yoked to the Jewish law. And so Jesus offers something better. He offers to take his yoke that he's on one side and we're on the other side, that we're united with him, that we are tethered to him. He seems to recognize that we're not okay. He seems to recognize that what's happening is not working. It's not accomplishing the purpose that it was intended for. Their new yoke is needed. He says, take off that one and put this one on. Tether yourself to me. Unite yourself to me. And I think in that moment, Jesus is saying, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not have it all together. It's okay to admit that there's sin in your life, that there's shame in your past. It's okay to admit that you're anxious or depressed or angry, even though the world out there tells you, don't you dare let that out of the bag. Put on the happy face and pretend that everything is okay. It doesn't work. And so while Jesus, I believe, is saying it's okay to not be okay, I think he's also saying it's not okay to stay that way. It's not okay to choose to stay that way. It's not okay to choose to stay not okay. And I hear this all the time as a pastor, well, that's just the way I am. No, <laughs> that's just the way you should be, have been. That's just the way you should have been, not the way you are. That Jesus has a preferred future for us that doesn't involve those things that we have to excuse with a, that's just the way I am. I know I ruffle feathers sometimes, but that's your problem, not mine. Not quite sure. It's not okay to choose to stay that way. It's not okay to choose to stay anxious, depressed, and angry. And I know sometimes that it's not as simple as making a choice. I'm not oversimplifying this. But I am saying that Jesus provides an, a different invitation, an invitation to something better, much, much better. And I think first and foremost, it's a better pace. I've read the Gospels dozens of times now, and I've never seen Jesus in a hurry. One book has been written, I think about this every time I'm driving across town because I'm really working on not hurrying across town. This, I heard this on a podcast and I need to look up this book. If you're thinking of it and you want to look up this book and send me the information, that would be such a gift to me because I only think of it when I'm driving. But it's this book titled Three Mile an Hour God. And I heard somebody mention it on a podcast and they're talking about Jesus, that he only ever walked anywhere. 
You don't hear about him running. He didn't have vehicles available to him. He didn't have airplanes available to him. The geographical footprint of his ministry was very, very small because he walked everywhere he went. And he intentionally focused on an area that he could go deep with. And he moved through life at a slower pace than most of us go through life. And I think the pace that Jesus would have for us would be a slower pace. If we yoke ourselves to him, we wouldn't be so frenetic. You might have to make some changes in the way you live your life. You might have to restrict your activities in order to walk with Jesus through life instead of running everywhere all the time. And I also think that not only a better place, but we'll find that Jesus carries the bulk of the load. I think it's safe to say that if I yoke myself to Jesus, I'm not pulling the majority of the weight, right? I'm certainly probably not even pulling 50-50. I think Jesus is going to be pulling the majority of that, the vast majority. And what he says next, I think, is, is part of the invitation It's not that he's there for us to pull real hard. It's that we can walk with him and we can learn from him. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and I am humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Not just physical rest, but rest for your souls. He invites us to learn from him, to walk with him, to watch him. And that brings back to mind that definition of discipleship. It's learning to live as Jesus would if he were me. And Jesus is humble. And Jesus is gentle. And by extension, Jesus is well-rested. Do those three words describe you in your life and in your daily Monday through Sunday life? Gentle, humble, and well-rested. I have to admit, that was not me for the majority of my life. That wasn't me for the majority of my ministry. I've been in ministry for over 15 years, and I can't say that the majority of that was gentle, humble, and well-rested. The well-rested part is just fairly new in the last year or so that I've actually started to sleep well on a regular basis. And it's the exception, not the rule, when I don't. And I still manage to feel pretty rested when I wake up, even on a short night. It's amazing. But I wasn't always humble. I thought more about me than I did about you sometimes, if I'm honest. And I wasn't always gentle, especially with those closest to me. And and I lament that, and I've asked for forgiveness for that. And I hope and pray, and I believe, that I am increasingly becoming gentle, humble, and well-rested. And just in case we forgot what he's talking about, he kind of summarizes it all together in verse 30. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy by comparison to religion or the American dream or whatever it is that drives us, the fear, the anxiety, the overwhelming despair. His yoke is so much easier, it's so much lighter And I wrote in my notes, if it's not easy and light, it's not Jesus' yoke. That's a really good way to tell if we're tethered to Jesus or not, is, is does life feel like we're moving through life at the pace of grace, at the pace of Jesus? Because that's the invitation. That's what we're invited to. And with that as a backdrop, I want to, after we've taught through this, I want to Read the message paraphrase of this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in the message, which is a great sort of supplemental uh, Bible or or version of Scripture to read. I like to read it when I'm preaching on a subject uh, just so that I can hear it in another frame of reference or get out of the well-worn paths that that Scripture might have in my mind. And, And here's how Eugene Peterson translates this passage in the message in a more modern translation. He says, are you tired, worn out, 
burned out on religion. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live life freely and lightly. I mean, that sounds like a pretty good deal. That sounds like how I want my life to be characterized. I love that phrase right in the middle, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. There's a rhythm of grace. There's rhythms in God's world. It's not chaos. There's a rhythm to it, and it's grace. It's unmerited favor from God. And so I want to encourage you to lean into this, to to pick a level of engagement. As I thought about how I would close this, a couple of examples of why unhealthy spirituality is such a problem. We, ha- we have to pay attention to this. We can't just dismiss this. And, and I'm, I'm even tempted to say that if you kind of scoff and brush it off, it, it might be more for you than, than you realize. I can't think of anybody that wouldn't want a church to go through this because you're either emotionally healthy and you want everybody else to be, or you recognize that we, we need this. And a couple of examples came to mind when I was walking with God in the cool of the day, like I do in the mornings in the summer. I just love summer mornings, going out and walking. And I was thinking, like, how are we going to bring this? Like, what are some examples of why this is so important? And the first one that came to mind was a couple of years ago, uh, we had a retirement celebration for Bill Canan, who was the pastor here at Linwood for about 17 years, had a tremendously fruitful ministry while he was here at Linwood. Planted, celebrate, and ransom churches, which have grown to be huge, like, Sioux Falls is not the same because of his ministry. Like, the things that shifted and changed while he was here are huge. And, and yet, as I kind of started to hear about that, I, I recognized that, that people were kind of tiptoeing around. Like, would it be okay if we, we did just a little something? Could we, could we let the church know about this? And I threw open the doors on that. And I said, of course, we got to celebrate him. We need to, you know, fly him in. We need to invite everybody from these other churches that were planted. And it, it caught people off guard. And I'm not here to toot my own horn. This is only by the grace of God, because there was a time in my life when I would have been very insecure about bringing back a pastor and celebrating them. But praise God, we had a wonderful celebration for him. And he even told me a couple times, he's like, this isn't normal. And it breaks my heart that this kind of thing isn't normal. And a more recent example of that was this past weekend. And I hesitated to share this one, which only underscores, I think, the point that I'm trying to make. That my family and I were invited to go back to Casper, Wyoming, where we had been on staff for four and a half years, and to share at that church. And... It created some anxiety that I became aware of. As soon as the word got out on Facebook and so forth, people were like, you're not leaving, are you? And some comments were even made, and some people that don't go here were like, hey, congratulations, what's going on at Highland? I'm like, nothing's going on at Highland, okay? There's a picture on the screen, and you don't know six of the people in this picture, but you know two of them. And the guy on the right and his wife, that's Mike and Shaney, they are the pastors of Highland Park. They've been there for 10 years. They're not going anywhere. You know Mark and Heather, we're the pastors of Linwood for five and a half years, and we're not going anywhere. (laughs) Like, you're going to have to chase us out of here, okay? I even told one person, like, it would not just take one burning bush (laughs) to get me to consider leaving Linwood right now. It would take multiple burning bushes. I would be like Gideon. Yeah, I know you did a miracle. I'm going to need another one tomorrow morning. Like, we love it here. We're not going anywhere. This was a sign of emotional health that Mike was secure enough in his leadership and had learned enough over his 10 years to realize that when that senior pastor before him 
who's John and Suzanne there in between Heather and uh, Mike and Shaney, that when they left, some things didn't go right. It, it got botched. And they didn't get celebrated the way that they should. And there was some emotional wounding and some hurt that took place. And he invited John and Suzanne to come back. And they've started attending that church again. And they invited John to share the week before I did. And so there was John, and then there was me, and it was just this wonderful thing. And there was this cool conversation that took place after the service, after the little reception. It was just the, those four couples sitting around tables, talking and sharing. That other couple is Harold and Veronica Bradshaw. Harold's been there the whole time. He was started as the youth pastor for John. He's been there for over 20 years, and he's been friends to all three of those couples. And I was looking at this picture, and I was thinking, man, this, this doesn't happen enough in the church. Too often there's just too much insecurity or there's too much this or there's too much that or people don't do the work to heal and something like that's never even possible. But we got to celebrate this kind of thing and we got to make sure that we're emotionally healthy so this kind of thing can happen and we can learn and we can grow together and we can impact this world together. Because our bottom line today is that deeply changed people change the world deeply. Deeply changed people change the world deeply. When we allow ourselves to be deeply changed by the gospel, to be transformed not just above the surface and we learn the right things to say and the right prayers to pray and the right songs to sing, but we allow the truth of God and our identity in Christ and the truth of his word to move beneath the surface and really transform us from the inside out be deeply changed, then we can deeply change the world. And I think we can all agree that our world, our nation, our community, even our families are in need of deep change. It will start with us. It will start with us choosing to be deeply changed so that we can deeply change the world. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you care so much for us. We're so thankful that you desire for us to be emotionally healthy, to experience emotional health, to experience healing by the power of the gospel, to be transformed from the inside out. And so we pray, Lord, that whatever our response to this is, that that we would respond in faith and in deep, deep trust of who you are, that we would respond to your invitation to come to you, to find rest for our souls, for those deepest parts of us. That we would learn and grow as we walk with you, as we watch how you do it. That we would step into those unforced rhythms of grace and that we would experience all that you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.